1: Welcome to True Crime Garage, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who is very tightly holding on to some tasty little nuggets of alien technology. Here is the captain.
2: Yeah, if you squeeze me too hard, I might fart. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very excited to be featuring Gray Monday 2021. This is a decadent, that's right, decadent bourbon barrel aged imperial stout with hazelnuts by the brewery. Garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. ABV 19%. So again, drink this one at home in your garage. We are drinking it in ours. And here are some friends that came to party with us this week. First up, we have... A cheers to Kim in Spencer, Ohio. And a big shout out to Gloria and Orlando, Florida. And here's the cheers to Roberta and beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah.
2: And a big we like your jib to Tristan and Dell City, Oklahoma.
1: And here's the cheers to Jennifer in Portland, Oregon. And last but certainly not least, we have a cheers to Emily in Ottawa, Canada. Everyone we just mentioned, they went to our website and they contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-U-N. If you've been listening for
2: years and you haven't donated, what you waiting for? And if you need more TCG in your ear balls, make sure you check out our other show called Off the Record. It is off the hizzy for shizzy. And you can
1: check out that link at truecrimegarage.com. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Over the years, during these trailers, we have provided differing definitions and opinions about sexual sadists or the Great White Sharks, as Roy Hazelwood calls them in his books, The Evil That Men Do and Dark Dreams. And on several occasions, we presented case studies from John Douglas, Ann and Alan Burgess, and Robert Ressler's Crime Classification Manual. Today, we present another case study from the manual. Case study number 134, sadistic murder, as it pertains to this week's killer, who is a real-life monster with a unique fetish. A sexual sadist is someone who has established an enduring pattern of sexual arousal in response to sadistic imagery. Sexual gratification is obtained from torture involving excessive mental and physical means. The offender derives the greatest satisfaction from the victim's response to torture. Sexually sadistic fantasies in which sexual acts are paired with domination, degradation, and violence are translated into criminal action that results in death. Sadistic murder victimology has some similarities to the victimology of organized sexual homicides. The victims are chosen through systematic stalking, and surveillance. They are approached under the pretext, such as the offenders requesting or offering assistance, asking directions, or impersonating a police officer. A ruse may be employed, such as posing as a talent scout, looking for prospective models or actresses, and promising them jobs. There are often multiple crime scenes involved with this type of sexual homicide the place of the initial encounter, the torture-slash-death scene, and or the body disposal site. The very nature of this crime, sadism, expressed through torture, necessitates a secluded or solitary place for the prolonged period of time the offender spends with a victim. This captivity may be from a few hours to as long as several weeks. The offender's residence may be used if it can provide the required seclusion. The body is routinely concealed, especially with the more organized offender. It is possible that there are implications of overkill and or deep personalization for pragmatic reasons. Often to obscure the victim's identity, the offender may tamper with the crime scene by staging secondary criminal activity, most often rape or robbery to veil the primary motive of sadistic murder. The act of killing is often eroticized. Death comes in a slow, deliberate manner that is savored by the offender. But because an unconscious or dead victim does not afford the offender the gratification he seeks, great care is taken not to end the victim's life prematurely. In several cases, offenders not only took special measures to keep their victims conscious, but actually revived near-dead victims in order to cause additional suffering. One of the many search warrant suggestions for this case type of offender is to look for items dealing with the offenses. These would be written records, manuscripts, diaries, threatening letters, calendars, sketches, drawings, audio tapes videotapes and photographs the green river killer gary Ridgway, was highly focused on the necks of his many victims for the malala forest killer dayton leroy rogers his thing was the feet of his victims and in this week's case study the serial offender was fascinated by the breaking of bones this is true crime garage and this is the case of the bone breaker killer This week, we go to Baraboo, Wisconsin. Baraboo is a city of about 12,000 people and is part of Sauk County. Sauk County is located in an absolutely beautiful part of the state of Wisconsin, which is not only a beautiful state, but a proud beer drinking state as well, by the way. Our story really starts off on the 4th of July, one of my favorite days of the year. This is Independence Day 1994. This is a Monday, but it's a holiday, so normally most people might sleep in on this day, but 14-year-old Christian Steiner started working at his first job just weeks ago. Chris was working at the McDonald's a few miles from his family's home, and on this holiday Monday, Chris was scheduled to work at the McDonald's, so his parents George and Kathy went to wake Chris up at 6:15 a.m. that morning, but Chris was not there. He was nowhere to be found. They look around the home. He's not already up and starting his day. He's nowhere to be found. So George and Kathy called the police reporting that something strange was going on and they didn't know where their son was. So this is what the police and Chris's parents, George and Kathy were able to determine. They found two doors unlocked. These are two doors on the ground level of the home. And next, they found a window screen with a slit in it. Now, on July 3rd, it was a very comfortable night, as far as temperature goes. And the family left many of the windows open that night at the house. The screen with the slit was for a window to Chris's older brother's room. This bedroom was located on the ground level. And the slit was described as large enough that someone could climb through it. Now, Chris's brother was not there that night. In fact, he was staying over at a friend's house. So the police and the concerned parents had a couple of theories. The theory they all liked the best was that Chris, along with the help of a friend or some friends, snuck out of the house, and at some point, he would probably be back soon, or maybe he might even wait a while to come home knowing that he's going to be in trouble for sneaking out of the house.
2: Yeah, or he might just find his own way to get to work.
1: The other possibility that they thought is that maybe he ran away from home. This would be a possibility, of course. We are talking about a 14-year-old boy. But his parents said, look, we don't have any problems with Chris. We don't argue with him. He doesn't argue with us. Everyone in the family gets along very well. And they said, although Chris did not get very good grades in school, he had recently started this job and was really liking his job. You know, there are some kids that are able to shine in the classroom, and then there are some that are just great little worker bees and shine more in a workplace-type setting. Well, that was Chris's thing. Here's what they told the police, because keep in mind when they went to bed the day before on July 3rd, everything was fine. The Steiners knew where all of their kids were. So they told police all about what went down on July 3rd. And they said that on July 3rd at about 3 PM, both parents picked up Chris from the McDonald's where Chris worked. Mm -hmm. Chris helped his mom get ready for dinner. Then Chris played with his little brother for a while in the backyard. George said that at 10 p.m. he went upstairs to check on Chris and found him asleep, still in his clothes, but asleep in his clothes on his bed. So George says he shut the light off in Chris's room, and that was the last time either parent saw Chris by the next morning at 6.15 a.m. He is gone. I would be guessing here a couple things. You're going to have some indicators to tell you that he probably did not go to work on his own. One, you don't have a note from him. It was agreed upon when they went to sleep the night before that the parents would be driving him early in the morning. Mm -hmm. And you're probably going to find his work uniform in the closet or still, you know, in his room somewhere. So this is a really interesting case to look at as this is not the typical situation that we have encountered before here in the garage in most cases, there is a major concern and panic. Mm -hmm. Normally, we have terrified parents, but in those cases, we are talking about a parent waking up to a cut screen and a toddler missing from the home. Here, it could just be what it seems, that he snuck out in the middle of the night, met up with some friends, and they got into a little teenage boy mischief, and he would be back, and well, unfortunately, that does not end up being the case
2: right but a couple other things too i mean he's 14 so it's possible is there some girl that he was talking to that they didn't know of that he wanted to meet up with or he has this new job he's working with people probably older than him did he meet up with one of them
1: right and i think that word friends encompasses all of those possibilities Mm -hmm. because you're right captain he is 14 he's at that age where You don't always tell mom and dad everything that you're doing when it's not on the up and up. And there were some other indicators, and I'm a little reluctant to throw these out there because I could only find one source that stated this, that they had found some muddy shoe prints inside the home. Mm. And my guess here, and this is why I'm a little hesitant to go down this road, but my guess here is that those muddy shoe prints would have indicated to the parents and to the police that somebody entered the home and then possibly left with Chris out one of the doors. Meaning, I'm guessing because of this slit in the the window screen, mm-hmm. that possibly there was footprints from that cut screen through the home. Because we have a statement later from George, from from Chris's father, that says, You know, I think that he, someone may have come to the house and left with Chris. One of his friends may have come to the house and left with Chris because he throws out there in that same, in that same statement that it would have been somebody that knew the layout of our home. Mm -hmm. So what I'm guessing if these footprints exist, um, is that it showed not somebody walking around the house, trying to look for something. You know, this is a fairly large home. There's multiple people that are living and staying there that the footprints, if they did exist, were an indicator to Chris's parents and to police that whoever entered the home knew where they were going. Meaning one, Mm. they went through Chris's brother's room because they may have known that the brother was gone for the night and it might be one of the only ground level bedrooms of the home and then made their way to Chris's room and then left through one of the doors on the ground level, leaving it unlocked behind them.
2: Well, and again, this is different than like a child abduction because the perpetrator could come in the house and carry the victim out. This is a 14-year-old young man, basically, so it's, I'm guessing he'd be pretty difficult to carry out on your own.
1: Yeah, and what I was pointing out earlier too, Captain, is that Again, this is a situation where I could tell from the, the parents' statements and from the police statements at the time well, I should say the sheriff, it was sheriff's department, that get it right. Nobody was really panicked. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like this was, you know, boyhood, childish uh, mischief going on. and the initial belief was that at some point on this day, on this Monday, on this holiday Monday, he'll come back home, and oh, he's going to be in trouble when he gets back here. Yeah. Now, the Steiners say that they spent that first night waiting up until dawn, sitting on their front porch, expecting that at any point he would come home. They said that they would stare down every car that pulled onto their street, thinking, okay, here he he is. Someone's dropping him off. But as the sun came up Tuesday, July 5th, Chris never came home. Well, yeah, and again, like you said before then,
2: at some point midday, you're going, kid's not even in trouble anymore in my mind. I just want him home. Yeah. You know, and now it's getting dark, something's wrong. That would be the moment, once it started getting dark, where I go, something's wrong. My boy
1: should be home by now. Unfortunately, most parents out there have had a similar situation where they go from being angry or upset at their child to feeling stressed and panicked and just worried out of their mind, worried sick, as my mom used to say. And so this is that situation. And most of the time for parents, the situation ends up being it's it's no real big deal. Mm -hmm. It was just a misunderstanding. But here, as you're pointing out, Captain, now it's the next day. And your son still has not come home. And the Steiners went on to say that they spent the next few days passing out flyers looking for their son. And George took to sleeping on the couch with the front door unlocked every night because he knew that Chris did not have his own set of keys to the house. Yeah. So that at any time, at any hour of the day, if Chris returned, he would be able to walk inside the home. Yeah. It becomes a very
2: kind of sad desperate scene
1: that's right and captain we do get some information that may give some more weight to the runaway theory and this is per the sheriff this is the uh, sock county sheriff and he has a cool sounding old school country sheriff name this is sheriff butch steinhurst Mm -hmm. he says there were two unconfirmed Let's be very clear about that. Two unconfirmed. Let's underline that word. Unconfirmed reports where someone says they saw Chris Steiner near the quick trip convenience store. This would be on July 4th. So the first day that he was missing. And then there's another unconfirmed report of a sighting of Chris at the local Kmart. This is the next day on July 5th.
2: Well, again, he's working with individuals that are probably a little bit older than him, some of them probably live on their own. So it starts making you wonder, did he go, look, I'm not that great at school, but I like this job. Maybe I've worked, maybe I got a couple paychecks, and I got a little bit of money now. Hey, I'm going to go move in with Steve that runs the fryer. But you think law enforcement would be in contact with, obviously, that McDonald's and any employee that works there.
1: Well, and we're talking about a town of 12,000 people. Right. So it should be fairly easy to ask the appropriate people and talk to anybody that would have known Chris and question where he may have been. And usually when those situations are going on, you do have people that know where the child is, know where the teenager is.
2: But I'm saying when you have a couple of people going, hey, I think I saw him, then you start going, well, it's. Is he staying with somebody and they're not coming forward?
1: Right, and that's where you go, okay, maybe the sheriff's department had it right in the beginning and this is a runaway situation.
2: Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today.
1: The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. while your subscription is active.
2: All right, we're back from the beer break. Cheers, mates, to everybody in the back. Cheers to the crispiest of the colonelist.
1: Of the colonelist. Cheers
2: to you, Captain. So, if I'm the sheriff, right? Mm -hmm. I'm all, I'm Mr. Butch, right? I'm looking at this first. My first guess: is you snuck out with your friends to drink some beer, smoke some pot, right? Or maybe prank some houses. That's what I'm thinking initially.
1: Meet up with girls.
2: Meet up with a girl.
1: Go hang out with some older dudes that you met at work. I yeah, mean, it's any number of things. Yeah, you're right.
2: And maybe the older guys are going—they're—they're they're going through a hazing process. Who knows? When that doesn't come through, I, I start going, okay, he's a runaway. Now we have these two possible sightings, but they're not confirmed. So I'm not leaning on that theory, but that that's probably where I'm leaning towards. But as more time goes by and then with these footprints too, so you go, everybody's home. They have a younger child, younger child's still there. The 14-year-old is the one that goes missing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then you have this, the other son just happens to not be there that night. You have this rip in the screen. As the sheriff, I'm starting to wonder, did something happen? And did the parents start, like set up this scene? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if that's something they looked into as this kid's missing.
1: From what I could find here, Captain Sheriff Butch Steinhurst and his, uh, the people working under his command and his rule seem to be fairly thorough. And so I'm sure that's probably something they looked at. But here, and as is the case in most situations, I'm guessing there's probably some details uh, about that night that we are not privy to. Right. So, um, because there never seems to be that voice or that concern ever presented in any portion of the early stages of that case.
2: Well, we're not also privy to their actions, their demeanor, their tone and voice in which they're presenting any of this information to the sheriff. Mm
1: -hmm. That's correct. And well, basically what's going to happen here is that it's going to be hell week for the Steiners. They last see Chris Sunday, July 3rd at 10 PM. And then they go through hell all week long. And on the next Sunday, July 10th detectives showed up once again to the Steiner home, knocked on the door and well, they didn't necessarily have the worst news for the Steiners, but it certainly was not good news. Detectives wanted to know if they could get Chris's dental records because a body had been found in the Wisconsin River in or near, depending on the source, the Pine Island Wildlife Refuge. The Steiners provided the dental records for the detectives and the Steiners were no dummies. They knew that if Sauk County detectives were at their door, that these detectives would not have been on their doorstep if they did not think that the body was was that of their son. The next day, the Steiners were notified that the body found in the Wisconsin River was their 14-year-old son. So now they knew that they had lost Chris forever. So the body is recovered from the river, but in the neighboring county. So now you have counties, you have two counties, Sauk and Columbia, investigating, plus you have the Columbia County Coroner, and the Wisconsin state Pathologist, all working the case. According to the county coroner, this is Keith Epps, because, of course, he was asked to speculate when the body, when it was recovered, he was asked to speculate about the body and what they could infer from what they were seeing at the scene. And Epps and the sheriff both described the body as bloated, and Epps adding that his guess would be that the body was in the river for at least three days because he says it usually takes about three days for the body to surface. The local news media questioned this, I'm guessing, because either they received some bad information on this case or possibly due to a local rumor. But they posed the question of, well, we heard or we were told That law enforcement believes that Chris was in the water for just two days and both the sheriff and the coroner were very, very clear saying, we don't know how long he was in the water, but it was longer than two days. Again, the coroner saying it usually takes about three days to surface and the sheriff adding, they usually don't get that bad in two days. That's his vague description of the remains. And from everything they were saying, Captain, it sounds like they couldn't really prove it, but they were working on the idea based on evidence and what their experience is telling them that Chris probably died closer to the time when he went missing and likely ended up in the water closer to the night when he went missing. Yeah. So remember, it was just a few hours over a week that he was gone. So law enforcement putting the time of death much closer to that Sunday morning when Chris's parents noticed that he was not home. The cause of death was ruled to be drowning, but the manner of death was left as undetermined. The sheriff said that they were actively looking for the entry point into the river. This might help to better determine the manner of death. Do we have puncture wounds? Mm -hmm. They're not very descriptive about what they're going to release to the public right. at this time. And they maybe they're trying.
2: holding that back because they know that some, that's something that a suspect would know or the killer would
1: know. Well, I think you're going to get a better idea of what their suspicions were uh, when I give you this information. The sheriff said that he was hopeful that they would be able to locate a party spot with obvious signs and evidence of a recent teenager party along the water. After days of trying, we were told no such party spot was located. It sounds like the sheriff's department was now fully on board with the idea that Chris's parents had in the beginning, right from Jump Street, that Chris was not only, you know, not only did he leave their home in the middle of the night, probably with somebody else. He wasn't alone then, but he probably wasn't alone whenever he went into the waters of the Wisconsin. Now, George and Kathy Steiner were left with only photographs and memories of their son, Chris. They remember him as a happy, loud, and boisterous boy who was a delight to be around. Remembering that Chris did exactly what the dentist told him for a full seven years so that he could get out of those braces on schedule. He had a new job that he liked and was already calculating the extra money he could make working on Sundays and holidays. He loved fishing, the outdoors, and playing baseball. George and Kathy set up a reward fund. This is very interesting here, Captain, because what we are faced with, again, is even though you have the ruling of drowning as the cause of death you don't have the manner of death was it an accident did right. somebody put him in the water did uh you know any number of things could have happened here
2: and again you're not saying that there's a toxicology report so we don't know if he went out with somebody's drinking and got drunk and end up drowning in this in this body of water
1: yes you're exactly right and one thing they did state early on is that they were going to run toxicology but it would be several weeks before they would get the results for that. We have to keep in mind, this is 1994. So Chris's parents, George and Kathy, they set up this reward fund offering a cash reward to anyone who came forward with information that would provide answers to Chris's mysterious death, because that's what you have here. You have a mysterious death, a suspicious death. Right. And one thing that I noticed kind of reading between the lines here. It seems like the sheriff's department kind of felt that way, that we have a quote-unquote suspicious death, even though they never said those words.
2: Well, like I said, at this point, even if the parents are being cooperative, the way you find him, you start going, wait, well, they're also the last people that saw him. So they they become under the umbrella of suspicion.
1: Right. And that's exactly it. It's He didn't get to the river on his own. Yeah.
2: Um, well, and technically, what his dad's saying is like, yeah, I roughly saw him, I rough, I roughly saw him. Stop me if I'm wrong. Roughly around the 10 p.m. area, mm-hmm. and then he was supposed to wake him up in the six o'clock period, and he wasn't there. So that's a large gap. That's you have eight,
1: about eight hours.
2: Yeah, that's a large gap of, and so it's like, well, where are you guys? whereabouts, and then that makes it more difficult too, because one, it's his parents, so you don't want to you know, piss them off by asking too many questions because you see they're grieving. Do they know more that they're just not telling you?
1: Well, and I think this will show there's kind of a united front here with the Sheriff's Department and that was my nickname in college, the Steiners, Mm -hmm. because remember the Steiners set up this reward fund offering a cash reward to anyone who would have information that could provide answers about Chris's death. A phone number was listed in multiple newspapers so that people could call should they have any information. Now, George, Chris's father, told the Wisconsin State Journal, what hurts so much is that you know that other kids were out there with him. Something happened out there. Something terrible happened out there. But what we can't understand is how someone could have left him there without calling. And Sheriff Butch Steinhurst said that no charges of withholding information or underage drinking would be brought against anyone who provides information regarding Chris's death.
2: Yeah, that's a smart move because they should do that more often because I think there's a lot of times where there's accidental deaths that, that people go to the extreme to cover up.
1: Well, there was a newspaper article that I think sums up what their concerns were regarding the mystery about Chris Steiner's death. The article is titled "Clues Saw in Death of Youth," and it goes on to say exactly how a Baraboo youth succumbed to the dark and murky waters of the Wisconsin River may remain a mystery unless authorities are aided by witnesses. And that's kind of how they left it, Captain. And how it would remain for quite some time. This brings us to Sunday, July 30th, 1995 in our timeline. This is almost exactly one year, really just a couple weeks over the one year mark. In fact, when Chris Steiner went missing and then later was found dead in the river. And now we're going to introduce another family. This is the Phillips family here, Captain. At 4 a.m., Donald Phillips woke up and noticed something strange. His son and daughter fell asleep on couches in the living room the night before. Now, at 4 a.m., his daughter is still asleep on the couch. But his 13-year-old son, Thaddeus, is nowhere to be found. Donald checked the boy's room, and again, his son was not there. And strangely, the boy's shoes were right where he had left them the night before. So no boy, but his shoes are right here. And yet there was not any sign of any type of struggle inside of this home. And there was no note or anything left behind from his son. So Donald and his wife called it into police, telling police what they knew about the night before and finding their daughter still asleep, but not Thad. And adding that Thad had never taken off before. And both were certain that if the boy had left on his own, that he would have left some kind of note for his parents to find. What is odd here as well, Captain, is the Phillips family, Thad, his parents, and sister, were new to this specific area. They moved into this neighborhood just about two weeks before. They lived about 11 miles away, a 17-minute drive from their previous residence. So they checked anywhere they could think of that Thad may have taken off to. This would be places like the fairgrounds and the community pool, but no Thad and the people they talked to and the people that they asked had not seen the boy either and offered no information as to where they might find their son. So either the boy took off under the cloak of darkness or someone had stolen the boy in the night.
2: But like you said, they're also new to the area, so you do have that sometimes you Hear about people uh, where they move into a new area. It's not going well for the kid. So the kid decides to try to take back off to where they came from.
1: Yeah, truly a difficult situation here because he's at an age where it would be difficult for him to cover any great kind of distance right. on his own. Um, you know, he doesn't have a vehicle and it would be obvious if his bike were missing. And I think, again, the alarming situation here, Captain, is we say either he took off under the cloak of darkness or someone came into the home and stole the boy in the night. But
2: again, 13-year-old, thats it's hard to carry a 13-year-old.
1: But when you see the boy's shoes where yeah. they were the night before when he had fallen asleep on the couch, I think as a parent for me, that would be my major concern. I'm going, wait, my son's not here, yet his shoes are right here. Did he... I get it if he snuck out of the house, but I think he's probably putting his shoes on before he goes out. That's telling me something else has happened in this
0: situation.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I agree. That's definitely a sign that if you're going to run away, you're not going to do it barefoot.
1: Exactly. That would be my thought here. And what you're pointing out, Captain, is a very common thing. People move away. Kid gets weird about the move. Maybe he doesn't know anybody in the neighborhood and makes an impulsive decision to take off. But those shoes being there would scare me quite a bit. This is going to lead us to Sunday, July 31st, 1995, just before 8 p.m. This is when a 911 call came in. On the line was a boy who said he was taken from his home in the middle of the night and was being tortured and held captive. The boy said he did not know his attacker or the location where he was being held. The call was traced, and once the location of the call was determined, police and emergency services were on the scene less than 30 minutes from the start of the 911 call. When they arrived on the scene, they found the caller, a boy, in bad shape. The call came from 13-year-old Thaddeus Phillips the boy who vanished less than 48 hours earlier. He told them that an older boy had kidnapped him and held him there. They rushed Thad off to the local hospital, and they went looking for the perpetrator. Police were looking for 17-year-old Joseph Clark, who was said to be, according to the police call, Joe was driving an old painted-over vehicle and may be in the company of a, quote, big girl or woman. The location where Thad was being held was less than half a mile from his home. Police didn't have much luck searching for the 17 year old suspect, Joseph Clark. So they set up a stakeout, so to speak, leaving officers and unmarked cars, watching the house and waiting for Joe to return. And he did just before midnight And when he returned to the home, he was placed in cuffs and arrested.
2: Well, when Thad calls 911 and when he states that it was an older boy that kidnapped him, I mean, this is a very abnormal situation. I would think if I was a police officer, yeah, I'm thinking a teenager is going to come around the corner, but I wouldn't have been surprised if it was a 25-year-old man or a 30-year-old man that told this, you know, teenager, hey, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm just a couple years older than you are. It's just such a abnormal, strange situation to have basically a kid abduct a kid.
1: Yeah, and I don't know. It's unclear how much Thad knew about his abductor. We know that he spent um, about approximately 43 hours being held captive by this older boy. Yeah. But again, he doesn't know joe clark even though they're both technically children he doesn't know anybody in that area he does know some of the people in in the area i mean he he lived about 10 11 miles from this location but you're right it this most of the people here are going to be completely new to him and his family yeah
2: it's a new town he's only been there for a little bit it's very strange he would know a few year older joe clark
1: Yeah. And he doesn't. And in fact, that is why he's not able to tell nine one one where he's being held. He doesn't have anything to offer up as to, hey, uh, here's a clue as to where I'm located so you can come and rescue me. They have to trace the call and keep him on the line. So our victim here, Captain Thad Phillips, 13 year old Thad Phillips, as we said, was sent immediately to the hospital. This is because, again, when he's found at this location, he's in very bad shape. It's obvious right from when they see him, he needs to go immediately to the hospital. This is where he's going to have to undergo several surgeries to try to repair his legs. In fact, in the first two surgeries, they put pins in one leg and a rod in the other. The injuries were listed a couple of different ways depending on which source You have, but what seems to be the general consensus is that Thad's legs were broken four times. Both ankles were broke, one of his knees, and a femur bone, all broken. That's crazy. And let's not forget the femur. This is your thigh bone, which is the longest and strongest bone in the human body. Thad not only told police about what happened to him, but he told his father, Don, at the hospital as far as what was being released to the public early on well they were mostly small details coming from Thad's father Don as he answered reporters questions while pretty much living at the hospital for days while doctors and nurses worked to repair his boy Don told reporters that neither he nor Thad knew the boy Joe Clark who abducted Thad prior to this incident so there you go that rules out any type of personal motive. Don said Thad's captor brutalized and tortured the boy in the form of beatings that involved Joe choking, punching Thad, as well as twisting the boy's ankles and legs and jumping up and down on Thad's legs. According to Don, Joe told Thad that he had kidnapped the boy because he liked busting people's bones and that he had done this type of thing before to other victims. Don said that the girl or the woman companion of Joe's, according to Thad never saw the boy and that she was not in any way, a part of the kidnapping or the torture that followed.
2: She never saw the boy. She you'd think that she at least heard the boy.
1: These are Thad's words that he mm. saw the girl, but she never saw him. Mm. And look, my belief is that he probably saw her through a window and right. saw her outside. Again, yeah, according to Thad and to Dawn, the girl had nothing to do with the abduction or any of the torture that followed.
2: Well, on a quick Google search, I, I put in how many pounds of pressure to break your ankle. One of the suggestions is <laughs> there's a link to the best ways to break your own leg. It says a rough estimate. It would take... About 218 pounds of pressure to produce a tibial fracture in a healthy adult using a hammer, so I'm guessing less for a teenager. You could decrease the force requirement by choosing a tool with less surface area, such as a hatchet. Then again, you'd be increasing the risk of soft, soft tissue damage and significant blood loss.
1: So here we have the abduction and torture of a 13-year-old, Thad Phillips. And now we have 17-year-old Joseph Clark, who lives just half a mile away in custody. And we have the parents of Chris Steiner, who are sitting there wondering, look, our boy disappeared, vanished in the middle of the night from our home, much like that of this young Thad Phillips kid. And we are still here over a year later, wondering how our son died.
2: So much more to get to. While you're waiting, go to truecrimegarage.com and sign up on our mailing list. What do you get? Hey, you get promo codes to the store page. And what You don't have to do nothing. You just sign up for the email list, and we shoot you a promo code every few weeks, and uh, you get to save a little cheddar. So join us back here for episode number two.
1: And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.